Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Our text this morning is again from Romans. I'm really glad that, that Jody uh, preached from Romans um, last week and picked up the text, and I hope he will be able to do it again. I imagine I'll be gone again. I want to get the book done. It's close to being done. But the text is, uh, I want to set it in its setting before we read it. And I know you've heard this before, but some of you haven't. And you need to know where this text is coming from. It would probably be easier for you if I stood up here. Um, The text is coming from a situation in the church in Rome where the people are very, very discombobulated and resentful about the fact that when they put their faith in Jesus, everything didn't get better. As a matter of fact, you could make the case that things got worse. Things got more difficult for them when they became Christians. Many of you have repented of a sin and have felt that after you repented of the sin, that the temptation of Satan in that very area doubled down on you as soon as you repented of the sin. You've ever noticed that? That it's like Satan intensifies his attack upon us. And the same thing is true when we become Christians, that the, 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 the suffering and the persecution and the doubts and all those things come together and you think, what on earth did it become a Christian for if things are harder now than they were before? I thought things were going to get better. Okay, And so that's what the Romans are going through. The Romans are, are not happy with the present state of affairs. And so if you read up until where we are in the book of Romans, in Romans 8, beginning with uh, 28, verse 28, if you read what's going on, you see the Apostle Paul trying to stiffen their resolve and firm them up and trying to protect them from being scandalized by their suffering. Are you with me? It's like, what? You know, what? What's going on? I thought I became a Christian so that God would be on my side, you know. He is, and this is the plan. This this is not a failure. This is a feature. This is called what? What's it called? It's called sanctification. You heard last week that it's being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And uh, listen, if, if, if you think being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ should be easy, would you please just look at the intensity of the world's effort to conform you to them? You can't open your mouth on Facebook without having 10 men jump up and down on you with their combat boots. Don't you dare depart from the party line of political correctness on Facebook and you will pay for it. So don't think that God's conformity is is difficult and the world's conformity is easy. No. The world uses every means from the federal government down to a little girl named Greta to make sure that you spout the party line. And so if the world is going to be intrusive and invasive and dictatorial and oppressive and and emotional and emotive and manipulative to get you to be conformed to, you know, to the patterns of this wicked world, it should never scandalize you that the work of God changing you to the image of Jesus Christ is difficult, right? 
It's difficult. And it's a feature. And this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to say to the Romans. It's difficult. It's a feature. You're being conformed to the image of your elder brother. Okay? In chapter 7, he does a beautiful job of describing our, uh, if, if you will, our existential angst. You know, our, 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 our day after day, that which I don't want to do, I do, and that which I do want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God and Jesus. Ah, that which, okay? And he, he so perfectly sums up the process of sanctification and saying, what is going on? What I want to do, I don't do. Right? So when you get to the middle of this chain of four links that we've referred to, this golden chain that we're in the middle of, what you see at the center of it, okay, when it says, for those whom he foreigned, he also... Uh, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the part of the text that sh- shoves you back towards the suffering of the previous chapters and the, inter- the internal turmoil, okay? And then shows you you really need to have what is about to come. Neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers the things above, things below, can separate you from the life. You actually need to hear that. Because your temptation is to think that every one of those things separates you from the love of God. Okay? And so look at that statement as the pivot point. Now, let's hear the word of God, uh, verses 28 to 30, Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this, Father, in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Going back to the beginning, uh, I want to I, I, I make a note of something because it's so constant in our world that you have to keep your eye on it. And that is, the beginning of this text has a what we could call a categorical statement. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And that word all, uh, it's obnoxious to us. And it's obnoxious to us because of the modern morbid habit of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal we think that the height of morality today is denying any generalization we hear. Are you with me? And so the minute we hear the word all, we're just straining at the bit, trying to come up with exceptions to the all. Well, not all, you know. Not all. 
Like, are you saying that, you know, when the storm hurricane hit uh, New Orleans, it all worked together for good? And, and how about AIDS? Not all! And so we begin to pick it apart. And we pick it apart with the exceptions to the rule. You know, uh, acts of catastrophe, death of babies, uh, handicaps, you know. Um, and we come up with all these things that we're prepared to say are exceptions to the all. All things don't work together for good. How can you say that? I mean, what a generalization. Now, I know, because this is such a precious statement in Scripture, that we tend to, to say, well, no, I, I, I accept it. All things. All things. I say, oh, yeah, how about the hurricane in New Orleans? Well, a lot of good came from that. Oh, yeah, what good? Well, a lot of people, a lot of people gave money to help all the poor people. Oh, so that, like, counterbalances. How about AIDS? Well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people that got AIDS, they actually became Christians on their deathbed. Okay, so that counterbalances, right? So all things work together for good, right? Listen, don't act as if you accept that statement and you're happy with that generalization. You're not. Do you understand what I'm trying to get you to admit? We all have these cosmic truths that we we do lip service to them. And we're inside, we're absolutely opposed to those very generalizations. And it's rare in the church to find somebody who doesn't have a perfect injury they have suffered which allows them to be bitter and angry and resentful. And I see it in your faces when I preach to you Sunday morning. If we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, there aren't many people here who love God and are called according to his purpose because a lot of the time your faces are actually quite nasty. Well, you say, not nasty. That's just my normal face. I say, well, that I pity your children. I pity your husband. <laughs> you know? And you say, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to cheapen smiles by walking around with a smile on our face every day and every way? The world's getting better and better. I say, no, but there's something in between those two things. You know, there's something in between you walking around looking like your best friend just or your child just died and walking around proclaiming the victorious Christian life like that dude down in Houston with the big smile, whatever his name is. I can never remember his name. What's his name? Joel Osteen, that's right, Joel Osteen, you know. <laughs> it takes an act of faith to believe the word of God when it says all things work together for good. And it also takes an act of trust in the judgment of God. And one of the reasons we don't like to examine the statement too much is because we don't like to look at the judgment of God. And so we separate the first part of the verse from the rest of the verse. 
there's a qualification to all things working together for good. It qualifies it by saying to those who love God, to those who are called according to the purpose. And that means that all things working together for good only applies to the Christian. Now, are you getting uncomfortable? You should be. Because what this means is that those who do not love God and are not called according to his purpose, all things don't work together for good. And that's another reason we like to, not, to, you know, to do lip service to this verse and then to leave it alone. Because none of us want to think about the fact that there are many people who the suffering that they have in this life is just the tiniest hint of what eternity will be for them. They will spend eternity banned from the presence of the Lord and therefore banned from what causes the universe to cohere and therefore banned from any love, from any faith, from any mercy, from any grace and therefore described as in the place where the worm doesn't die and the flames never go out. All things do not work together for good for them. It really does matter whether or not you have faith in Jesus Christ. And no, because a mother gets her child to pray the sinner's prayer when he's six years old, that does not save the child. And so she can't just reassure herself that, you know, she can't do that. Because all things work together. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And that's the real existential angst of every mother and father. And angst doesn't begin to touch it. Where you just plead with God. I remember Rita Cuffey. You know, her husband and her, her oldest son were not... Uh, did not have faith. And I remember Rita telling me over and over again that God had promised her that her husband would come to faith. And I can remember, you know, meeting weekly for years with her. I can remember sitting in the office and thinking, you know, your, your, your faith is so sweet. Which is, of course, me patronizing her, right? You know, it's so sweet that this is, this is what you're convinced of. But of course, she had faith, and he did come to the Lord, you know? It's like the most unbelievable thing. Any of us that were there and remember it, it's just like, are you serious? Jimmy Coffey? Jimmy Coffey, you know? And he died the last three weeks over here in the Bloomington Convalescent Home with her holding his hand, reading scripture to him, praying and singing hymns. And when you went in and visited them, it was so obvious that he took delight in it. This was the man who, when I first came to Bloomington as I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, I got to the Sermon of Matthew, I got to the Sermon on the Mount. The first Sunday, I read the Sermon on the Mount as my sermon from beginning to end. And that particular Sunday was the Sunday that as Jimmy went out the door, he just spouted horrible things about how Scripture is wrong and the Sermon on the Mount is wrong and just... He just trashed that sermon. 
And I thought, how interesting that it's when the entire sermon is simply the Word of God, that's when Jimmy comes completely out of himself and shows his, his, his anger against God. And that man became a Christian. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so when you come to statements like all, remember, for you, if you're a believer, it is all. It is the death of your children. Do I need to go on? That works together for good for you. Remember, it's limited to those who belong to God. It does not work together for good to those that God has not called. And if you deny that, and if you are angry at God about that, speak to him about it. But there's no way to read scripture without seeing the fact that this promise is limited to those who belong to God. Okay? Okay? Don't try to clean God up. Because it's your standards of cleanliness, and they don't matter. What matters is God's standard of cleanliness, okay? And so we go through this statement, and then we come, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then this, uh, at the center of this hinge, where we are reminded that the things we suffer are appropriate because... We are predestined to suffer. That's the whole point of it. Because that's what being conformed to the image of God, of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren means. Then in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, let's talk a little bit about the meaning of this statement, those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay? Um, I don't know about you, but I have, a, I have a difficulty with this. And my difficulty with this is that one of the ways that Satan, um, what would I say? Uh, harass sounds too small and trivial. So what's beyond her? Torments. One of the ways Satan torments me is he points to the word uh, call and he reminds me that even though here it says that, all right, the second link is what? Well, the second link is this. It is uh, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified. So this is a link in the chain. Remember, I used the image of a coupler between boxcars. All of these are linked in such a way that it's hard. And you can't separate them, okay? And so here, this word called is used in a way that links it hard to what comes before the foreknowledge of God and the predestination of God and what comes after, which is justification and glorification. But here we are at the word call. 
And what Satan torments me with is the, um, is the fact, well, I'll read it to you. I don't know if any of you thought of this, but this is, this is, uh, this is what I have difficulty with. Matthew 22, verse 11, But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And do you remember the verse that comes next? None of you? For many are called, but few are chosen. So imagine if you've grown up with godly parents in a a godly church, from a godly family. You've been to seminary, you're a pastor. You certainly are somebody that showed up at the wedding banquet, right? Right? And then all of a sudden, you're not dressed properly. I have this recurring theme in, in a dream. I mean, I've had this dream probably hundreds of times in the dream. My daughter's telling me not to tell the story. <laughs> and the dream is that it's college church. It's not you. I wouldn't be worried about doing this with you. But it's this, this super wealthy sophisticated church with all the Christian leaders that I grew up in up in Wheaton. And I have been given the, 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 the wonderful honor of being able to preach to these important people. And I'm walking along the side of the sanctuary outside and I realize I'm late, which of course all of you know that would happen, right? <laughs> you know. And so I'm late and as I get halfway up the sidewalk, all of a sudden I look down and I realize I'm in my boxer shorts. And so I'm stuck because on the one hand, I can be less late by going in. And I know as soon as I walk in front of everybody, I'll be, be, you know, I'll be here. And so for the duration of the sermon, it won't be a big deal. You know, or I could go home and get my suit pants on, but then I'm going to be really late. And that's always where the sermon ends. And so you think about this man who comes into the wedding banquet and he's not dressed properly. And then Jesus ends it with this statement. He's cast out. And Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. Okay. And so what is the resolution between this where call is a coupler between absolutely firm things holding them together, okay, and many are called, few are chosen. And I want, I want to say to you this morning that many times in Scripture, the same word is used and it has different meanings. Don't let this scandalize you. Many times in Scripture, the same word is used to say two different things or three different things. And if you look in a dictionary and you look at how the, the definitions of words vary... I mean, it's, it's foundational to the use of language. But when we get in Scripture, we always have a tendency to think that the most literal meaning is always the one that's right. And Jesus actually says that that's wrong 
because you remember he says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, right? And the disciples are thinking that they got something about the food wrong. And then it turns out that he was talking about the sin and the temptations and the hypocrisy. And he was using the word leaven to refer to defects, moral defects, to refer to sin, the corruption of sin. And if you've ever made bread, you know that leaven corrupts the dough. But it's a good corruption. But that's why it would be used here with Jesus with a bad corruption, something that spreads. It is not always true that the literal meaning of a, of a word is the most pious one to have in Scripture. All right? You actually have to work to read and understand Scripture. And that should not be scandalous to us. Why do we always think that the easiest path is the most pious one? You know, wrong, you know. And so here, when he says that those who are called, all right, are justified. And back in Matthew, when he says that many are called, but few are chosen, the difference is that there is a call of God, which is general, and there is a call of God, which is effective, And the call of God that's general is not always effective. Okay? And so the call of God where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a call, right? Can you all hear it? Come to me. And where Jesus says, You believe in God, and he says what? Believe also in me. These are general calls, and many of the people that heard them did not come to Jesus, did not believe on Jesus. Many are called, few are chosen, but here we're dealing with the effectual, the effective call of God. And this is a call that God has uh, empowered in such a way that a man cannot resist. It's the irresistible call of God. And that's why it's coupled to what came before and what comes after. All the called are going to be justified. All the called will be justified. And all the justified will be glorified. There are no failures when God chooses you. And you know, at this point I want to stop and I want to I want to, you know, I want to stroke the faces and tassel, tassel the hair and, and scratch the back of all of you who don't want to hear that. You know, I, I, I myself know how difficult it is to have God's salvation be a function of God and not synergistic with us and God and some maybe a little bit of the church too, and sort of mess it up such that we can't see what's going on. 
And I'm not going to do that. I've spent several Sundays doing that with you. Either you accept the teaching of Scripture or you don't. And I'm okay with you refusing to accept what Scripture teaches. Now, I'm not really okay, but I say that because, let's be honest, any particular Sunday, there are tons of people in this room who do not accept what God's Word said that day. I mean, come on. I'm not a fool about this, you know. And so if God is at work in your heart and you're scandalized by what his word teaches about the nature of faith, saving faith, and where it comes from, I don't mind you being scandalized because I know sooner or later you will know the truth and the truth will set you free of your limited and stupid ideas of what we as humans, men and women, are able to do. We cannot save ourselves. God has to reach down to us. Despite the Pelagianism of the Roman Catholic Church and the semi-Pelagianism of the Roman Catholic Church, Michelangelo got it right in the Sistine Chapel where he painted the ceiling, and the ceiling has the hand of God coming down. It's the only religion in the world where the hand of God comes down. We're not reaching up. Now, the hand is reaching up, but it's so clear from the image that it's God taking the initiative, just in the Sistine Chapel ceiling. This is Christianity. Don't you ever think that you can climb to God. You cannot. And so when it says called here, it is talking about a call that comes from God that is irresistible. And you say, you mean to tell me I can't decide no? And I say, this particular call, yes, you can't say no. The other call, many are called but few are chosen, yeah, you can say no to that one. You say, well, okay, but why do I say no to that one? Well, because God didn't call you. And you say, wait a second, you just said many are called. I say, yeah, okay, a lot of times in understanding what's being said, it helps for you to set the, the most intense opposition between the two things you're trying to resolve. Say it in such a way that it just is so clear that they're in opposition. So, so here it is. Many are called who aren't called. Okay? It's a true statement. But the word called has different meanings in the first and second use of it. Those who are called by God effectively, effectually, are justified. And justification is an act whereby God deposits, imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 33, what is justification? Remember, those who are called are justified. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And then Martin Luther says this. 
Justification takes place when, in the just judgment of God, our sins and the eternal punishment due to them are remitted, are forgiven. And when clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which is freely imputed to us, and reconciled to God, we are made his beloved children and heirs of eternal life. Now, what word was used in both of those statements? Yeah, somebody said it. Who said it? Yeah, imputed. What does the word imputed mean? Well, the word imputed is given to condemn the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that it's infused. You can't have infusion and be biblical. What is infusion? Well, infusion is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that teaches that as we partake of the sacraments of which they they add to them until they have seven. As we go through our auricular confession, as we are, uh, receive uh, absolution, as we go to Mass, preferably every day, as we have last rites, as we are confirmed, okay? As we work the system, then our hearts more and more become like Jesus Christ by our working the system. And depending upon how many works of righteousness we have done, we then have the love of God possessing our heart in such a way that we're qualified for heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ saves us, but the way he saves us is by giving us, say, for instance, the beatific vision. Okay? And we're so inspired by him that we begin going to daily mass, we begin auricular confession, we receive absolution, we have our children confirmed, we have them baptized, we work the whole system in such a way that when we die and have last rites, don't forget about that, God sees that we have been infused with the love and holiness of Jesus Christ to such a degree that we now merit heaven. Or we merit one century less in purgatory. Because that's always hanging over your head. And your salvation depends upon that. That's why Roman Catholics, if you ask, are you a Christian? They will always say, I'm a Catholic or I'm a practicing Catholic. Because to them, it's the height of pride to say, I am a Christian. Why? They have to work the system. They have to have the righteousness of Christ infuse them. Imputation, on the other hand, is God applying to you the foreign, external, alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, why the word alien? Well, because illegal aliens don't belong. Right? I mean, isn't that what alien means? It's alien. It's foreign. It is not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so justification is God applying to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And on that basis, and it's foreign, it's alien to us, okay? And on that basis, he declares us just as if we never sinned. Justification, just as if we never sinned, okay? And so a whole lot rides on the distinction between infusion of the Roman Catholic Church and imputation 
of Scripture. Now, it's scandalous to speak against anything in the Western world today. I know that. But here in this church, we hold historic preaching, and this is a feature and not a failure. I am condemning the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that keeps people working a system that they come to trust in for their salvation. Why am I doing that? It's compassion. You say, well, my Roman Catholic mother wouldn't receive it as compassion. I'd say, yes, she is, if she's called. You say, wait a second, you're saying my Roman Catholic mother isn't called? And I say, well, at some point we know that all things work together for good, and that we indicates those who belong to God. And we don't just know that they work for good, but that these are the people they work for good for, and they also know that this train of four things is locked together, and God has done that. The preacher didn't make it up. And so let me read some scriptures about justification and working the system. Is that what scripture teaches? No, it's not. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You can't go through some calisthenics of redefining daily mass and auricular confession and and confirmation and last rites as not a work of the law. No, those are works of the law. Okay, I'm not saying it's wrong to take the Lord's Supper. It's wrong to go through confirmation. It's wrong to have a priest by your side as you die. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying our trust is not in the things we do. Those are works of the law. Circumcision, baptism. And it says, because by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified. Romans 3.24, being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, not through daily mass. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.2. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith. And I could, I could continue and multiply Citations like this. We are not justified by our works and our righteousness. And listen, if you think it's pious for you to claim some degree of helping God in your salvation, let me disenamor you of that notion and tell you that the reason you think that's pious is because you're very proud. And you refuse to admit what a piece of work you are. Not what a piece of work your husband is, but you are. There is no way for you to trust and cling to your own working of any religious system 
without becoming the enemy of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's either all of God or it's none of God. Remember what the Old Testament tells us. The Old Testament tells us that God's name is what? God's name is jealous. That's what it says. God is not interested in you helping him. (laughs) I mean, you know, think about that. It's absurd. And yet that's the way we think. We have to help God. You know, I'll take communion tomorrow if I have devotions today. You know, every religion, every denomination has the things that it says you have to work in order to qualify. You know, it's just that Protestants have a little bit different things, you know. And listen, God, his name is Jealous. He is not interested in you helping him. What he is interested in, or what he commands, is that you bear fruit. And there's a huge difference between you helping God and you obeying his command to bear fruit. You feel the difference? For one thing, one of them is a command. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it. You are to bear fruit. I have this peach tree. And this peach tree is obnoxious. We planted it bare root, and for years now, it's been 15, 20 feet tall. And, and Charlie, a year ago, Dugdale, went over and lovingly pruned that, that tree. And do you know that that tree, every year, it, it, it gives such, a, such promise. Such promise. It puts out 200 little peaches all over the tree. And one year I read that maybe they'd fall if I didn't prune it. And so I took off every peach. I climbed all through the tree like a squirrel and took off every peach that was less than six inches from the next one. Because that's what I, I read you were supposed to do. It does not matter what we do with this tree. I have yet to get any peach out of this tree. Now, you're all sitting there thinking this is kind of funny, right? It's not funny when we do not bear fruit for God. You want to know what it's like to not bear fruit for God, you remember the fig tree. And the thing I love about that fig tree that Jesus was hungry and wanted to eat off of, the thing I love about that story is that the Bible says it wasn't even the season for for fruit. (laughs) And I just think... You know, this is God. You know, he is not bothered. What season is the season for fruit? Well, when Jesus is hungry. (laughs) You know, we done been relegated. Right? You all with me? Listen, you want to know whether you are effectually called? Jesus says there is one way to know. And that's not doing mass. That's bearing fruit. If you want to know whether God has saved you, you look at the fruit in your life. And you see whether God is bearing fruit through you. And you say, well, that's not helpful. I'm not very good at bearing fruit. And I say, you know, that peach tree, I'll just, I'll be satisfied with one. One peach. One bite of one peach. And listen, this is often the way we are as God's children. 
We can't bear hardly anything. But God is looking for just a grain of faith, a mustard seed of faith. A mustard seed of stopping and being compassionate with the weak. A mustard seed of saying, yes, mama, yes, papa. <laughs> okay? It's hard. It's not easy to be a child. It's not easy to obey. It's not easy to obey and have the right reason. And when you see fruit, that fruit has not earned you the right to be called and justified and glorified. But it's an indication that the work of God is alive in you. And you're coupled, and on that day you'll be there. And you won't be thrown out of the marriage feast of the Lamb because you'll have the right clothing on. And what is the clothing? The clothing is the white garments of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's also good works. But the good works don't qualify you to be there. It's just that everybody dressed in the righteousness of Christ will be known because they have good works. It's fruit, okay? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will make us tender towards it, tender to one another when it cuts us, that we will be compassionate. We pray for all of us here gathered this morning that we will give ourselves to obedience to you, knowing that you are the one who has given faith, that you have called us, that you have chosen us, that you have foreknown us, that you have predestinated us, that you have justified us, and therefore on that day we will be found conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.